Welcome to Jade Explains Death, a place where the more morbid the curiosity, the better. We'll be confronting the one thing humans fear most, death. Each episode will be dedicated to a manner of death, and I will paint a vivid picture of how each would feel, as well as share some of the darkest yet most interesting real-life stories. Get ready, because we're about to embark on an adventure now. Well, hello, my true crime cupcakes. We're going to continue on with Poisons Explained. Last week, I ended up covering only cyanide because the Jonestown Massacre took me a solid half an hour. We're going to get into more than a couple poisons today. My content may be upsetting to some and for a mature audience. Listener discretion advised. We're going to kick off with an unpleasant poison that you may have never heard of. You see, we have a huge library of poisons that stem from different plants. Each has its own misfortune filled with misery. Poisons can make for a stealthy murder weapon. It happens more often than most realize, and majority of cases happen out of a crime of passion committed by a woman or in Munchausen by proxy, again, mostly committed by women. Maybe it's a numerous fairy tale centered around poisons. Maybe it just seems especially poetic. Or maybe it's simply because you really don't have to get your hands too dirty and there isn't a squishy bloody mess to clean up after. One such poison comes from a perennial plant that is mostly native to Europe and Asia. It causes an array of nasty symptoms like gut pain, violent vomiting, and heart rhythm changes. It was used in a little-known London murder, and it took a couple tries, allowing me to set the scene. You are unlucky in love, my dear. Your first marriage was a bust. Things started out so promising, you were both young and felt unstoppable. Once you put a ring on her finger, she began to change. She grew controlling and honestly seemed to hate you more often than she could stand you. But then again, maybe you weren't so perfect yourself. You had a bit of a wandering eye. When you met a stunning, dark-haired, 20-something beauty, you just couldn't help yourself. You felt like you won the damn lottery when she noticed little old you. You admired her from afar, never dreaming that she'd give you the time of day. When she did, that was it. She batted her eyelashes and shot you a mischievous smile, and just like that, your marriage was over in your eyes. Soon it was over in your wife's eyes, too. You didn't waste any time, how could you? You were scared that your lover would change her mind and find someone else. You moved her into your home. You took weekend trips. She even cooked you culturally diverse meals that you never had a chance to try before. She told you that she loved you within days of your divorce. You felt like singing your devotion from your rooftop. But years began to pass and once again, things changed. She was hardening on the outside. She grew cold and quick-tempered, but you didn't want to lose this one. She was special, so you conformed. You twisted yourself around her will. You did everything that you could to make her happy. You saw your family less and less. You lost touch with old friends. You were too busy walking around on her littered eggshells. Things seemed to improve for an odd time, but it didn't last, and she began getting cruel. She started throwing the mother of all temper tantrums. She would throw old china and picture frames on the floor. She honestly seemed so delighted in the shattering violence as well as the image of you cleaning it up. She also seemed to fly into jealous rages over nothing. You didn't socialize outside of her. She had your undivided attention, yet it wasn't enough. You were growing tired. She never let you catch a glimpse of the charming, lively beauty that you fell in love with you slowly started to drift away from the notion that you didn't want to lose her. You began spending more time away. You visited your family out of town. You rekindled friendships. 
She didn't like any of that. One night, you woke up to her on top of you in bed. This was not a fun little tryst. She had her hands gripping your neck. Her petite doll hands seemed to gain a strength that couldn't possibly come from her small frame. Luckily, you were stronger. You pushed her off and simply drifted back to sleep. Your slumber came from the comfort of knowing that you were done. The next day, you broke the news to her and left before she could throw any of her petulant tantrums or shoot you with her wrath. You told her that you were leaving to go stay with family until she could pack up and find a new place to live. You weren't subscribing to any of her bullshit, but she wasn't done with you. A few weeks passed and you received a call. She informed you that she planned to move out in the next two days, but there was a catch. She wanted to spend one last evening with you. She would cook you a meal as a peace offering. She didn't want to leave things on that bad screeching note. You agreed simply to give her closure and to get her the fuck out of your life. That evening, you were thoroughly surprised by her behavior. She was not only cordial, but sweet and apologetic. It wasn't enough to make you waver in your decision. After all, you'd already been there before with her. Been there, done that. She didn't even take the news that badly. There were no tantrums. She didn't scream. No glass was shattered. And as you walked out of your own front door that night, you felt free. She'd be departing your home soon and you would no longer have any ties to her. You arrived at the house you were staying with a beaming smile. You called your sister to tell her the good news. While still on the phone, your stomach began churning. It was emitting noises that you've never heard before. Which end was the dinner about to come out of, you wondered. Things escalated pretty quickly. Your throat grew so eroded from all the vomiting that blood began oozing up. You were dizzy and you knew that it was going to get worse. Your first suspicion was food poisoning, so you got a ride to the emergency room. While there, your blood work was all sorts of wonky. It seemed that your organs were not doing so hot. You were admitted to the ICU and a team of specialists began looking after you. It was a little bit of a blur, but eventually you began to improve. The funny thing about food poisoning is it can really mess with your blood levels. Your liver function test can get all weird. When you got better, those numbers improved, and that's all the ordeal seemed to be. Hallelujah, by the time you were discharged, your former lover was free from your home. You were able to go rest in your own bed with your own peace. Things seemed to be back to normal. She wasn't bothering you all that much, aside from the occasional phone call. Of course, after a few weeks, that began to change. She'd get looped out on liquor and benzos and call you in the dead of night. If you didn't answer, she'd leave some hard-to-understand but obviously furious messages. You didn't sweat it too much. You were heading on a trip to India. You figured she'd cool off in the meantime and maybe even meet someone new. After your trip, you returned home. You were a little nervous at first. You wondered how many tantrums she had and snuck into your home for, but you were pleased to find everything as you left it. You prepared yourself your favorite dish to celebrate, curry. You let it cool in the fridge while you ran errands. When you returned home, you had a special guest with you. It was actually a secret, a top secret. You did not want to deal with fallout from your ex-lover had she found out. You had actually met someone new a couple months ago, and what's more is you were engaged to her. That's exactly why you went to India. You brought her with you on a nice little excursion. You reheated your curry and offered some to your fiancé, but she already ate. You made a huge plate because you were still trying to make up for all the lost calories when sick. You even made a second helping, which is kind of unlike you. After dinner, you had a little tea to settle the mounds of spicy food raging around inside of your belly and sat on the couch for some news. 
Once again, you began to feel like a nasty bout of food poisoning was setting in. What the hell? How is this happening again? You excuse yourself to the bathroom where you begin violently vomiting again. The pain is so much more intense this time. You're hearing ringing in your ears. Your limbs and face are going numb. Gravity begins digging its claws deep into you. It's aggressive. It won't relent. What have you ever done to piss off gravity? Your head is singing with cicadas or hot power lines. You can't even tune into any steady thoughts. Your chest feels like it's encased in loads and loads of lead. You can't fight it off anymore. You can see it to the bathroom floor. You don't have enough strength to even lift your head any longer. Unfortunately, gravity isn't preventing the hot vomit from whelming up in your throat. You roll over onto your side. You are gurgling and gagging. The cool floor feels nice against your torrid cheek, but its texture isn't welcoming. Your muscles begin seizing up, sending your head bumping onto the hard tile. This is so much worse than last time you think, but nothing can be done about it. You can't lift yourself from the floor. You aren't getting a break from the constant stream of blood-tinged spicy vomit. Curry is the worst thing to throw up, hands down. This is a new realization. If only you had butter noodles or something bland for dinner, perhaps this wouldn't be such a messy circus from hell if you did. Plus, you don't want your fiancé to see you like this, with your dignity flying out of your mouth, into your hair, and onto the floor. The strange tingling in your limbs is beginning to fade. Something much more ominous is replacing it. The numbness seems to be transforming into deep-seated paralysis. You have no control over your sense of muscles. What's worse is you can't breathe. Is it vomit corking up your airways? Waves and waves of electricity sweeps through your guts. It's one of the remaining things that you can feel, aside from the disgusting sensation of all energy being drained out of you like a tender abscess. This is what dying feels like. After that last connected thought, your vertigo and exhaustion takes you over. There is a shrinking tunnel of light. It's getting smaller and smaller, and you just somehow know that when it shrinks away completely, that will be the end. One last burst of desperate panic erupts from your belly before the acceptance has you in its grasp. When you took your last breath, you still didn't quite understand reality. Remember earlier today when you went off to run errands and put your dinner in the fridge? Your snake of an ex-lover snuck in using the spare key that she knew was hidden somewhere around the porch. You relaxed on leaving it around when her calls grew silent. You were too taken with the excitement of your future bride and future life to see the grim truth and danger. She played it perfectly. You believed that you were safe because she allowed you to believe that you were safe. She opened your fridge door and noticed the pot of curry. It was still hot to the touch. She understood your routine well. She knew that the pot of curry was going to be dinner. She pulled it out pulled off the lid and added her own special ingredient, aconite. It's a plant that she already had on hand. You see, she began growing it last year when your relationship was going to hell and you began to pull away. That meticulous little bitch already knew then that her revenge would be growing in her portable little greenhouse. This perennial doesn't take all that much to kill, though she still had somehow watched it the first go-round. You recovered. She didn't use enough. You might wonder why she'd select aconite of all poisons that you can grow in and around your own home. Well, aconite is one of the most miserable poisons. It causes irritation to your soft tissue internally, but that isn't what kills. That is where these severe food poisoning symptoms came from. It also causes total and complete paralysis. It leaves its victims completely conscious and aware 
while suffering the horrendous agony and panic due to suffocation. Once it takes full effect, nothing will function. Your lungs will grow paralyzed, leaving you unable to breathe. It causes your heart to go haywire. You don't fall unconscious until death is near. This time, she was sure to put enough in to prove fatal. In fact, she put in over seven times the lethal dose. The only saving grace is that your fiancé wasn't hungry. She meant to kill both of you because she knew everything. Your murder was cold-blooded and calculated. It took her well over a year to plan. I guess the only piece that I can offer you in your death is that the bitch didn't get away with it. She spent so much time researching poisons and ways to kill, and too little trying to figure out how to cover her tracks. In the end, you were dead within an hour of your last meal. There was a part of you deep in your subconscious that knew that your ex-lover poisoned you. Aconite contains a couple of really dangerous alkaloids. On the flip side, these same alkaloids can also be beneficial in very trace amounts. They're considered neurotoxins because they can do extensive damage to the nervous system and basically shut down their function completely. In addition to the symptoms already described, this poison can give you a creepy crawly sensation on your skin. Because your nerve tissue is being harmed, your nerves can cause some very strange feelings before shutting down entirely. You can feel wetness, a tickle, extreme heat, or the sensation of bugs crawling up and down your skin. Another poison that is known in just about every household that is similar is botulinum toxin. It's used for skin treatments and prevention of migraines. The amount used in these tinctures is so minuscule because this is one of the deadliest natural poisons, or poisons in any right, known to man. One single gram of it in crystalline form can take out one million freaking people. That's a scary thought. This would make an incredibly effective bioweapon. Unlike aconite, botulinum isn't an actual plant, but it is found in nature. It comes from a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum. That is a tongue twister. But it can be found in soils, dust, and sea sediment. It can also be grown purposely in the right environment, which again is scary as hell to me, especially if some skilled scientists wanted to make a weapon out of it. Sometimes our own bodies can grow this bacteria. In very, very rare scenarios, it can produce the same toxin causing severe illness and rapid death. This is so uncommon because our bodies do not typically breed the environment best for creating the toxin, thank God. The bacteria itself does not actually cause botulism, a certain product of this bacteria does. But anyway, this is also a neurotoxin. It obviously takes just a small amount to cause total and complete paralysis. Death comes from suffocation and eventual cardiac arrest, but the road getting there is terrifying. It only causes pain early on, and like aconite, it's typically felt in your guts and chest. You might also experience the creepy crawlies before you lose every single function in your body. The final four minutes of your life will be riddled with impending doom and panic as you try to breathe but realize you can't. Eventually, you can't even swallow your own spit. A woman was poisoned by this years ago. She didn't want to pay a medical professional for Botox injections, so she hired some rando guy to come to her house to do it. Tragically, he didn't know how to properly measure the stuff or inject it. He ended up feeding the toxin into her bloodstream. Immediately following the injection, she took a dip in her jacuzzi. In a couple short minutes, she lost the ability to move and breathe. She slowly sunk underneath the hot bubbling water and drowned to death. She would have suffocated regardless of the jacuzzi. This next true tale is seen as one of heroism by many. 
Even so, it still comes to an end with a beautiful woman being hanged and strung up on a wall that was similar to the one seen in the fictional city of Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale. Back in 17th century Italy, many husbands were a special breed of treachery. Women had virtually no rights besides the right to breathe air, and even that was robbed of them from time to time. Divorces were basically impossible to obtain, especially on the woman's end. Speaking against their husband was something that no woman dared to do. They were threatened with unspeakable torture if they ever stepped out of line. They understood that these were not empty threats. One such means of torture was the scold's bridle. It was also fittingly known as the wife's bridle. It was an iron muzzle, and it was far more archaic and barbaric than the one you'd see on a horse. This ugly contraption fit over the woman's face and had a piece that inserted into the mouth. The especially sadistic husbands made sure that the mouthpiece had a thick, sharp nail that would effortlessly drive into the tongue of their wives if they dared to speak. This was obviously physically painful, but mentally as well. One of the key ingredients in this torture included public humiliation. The wife was ushered down the busiest streets by leash. They were likened to a dog. Onlookers would often throw food and garbage at them. They would spit vicious slurs. And this was just the torture that went on in the public's eye. It was not unusual for a woman to go missing from neighbor's view for weeks at a time. When they'd finally reemerge, you'd see dulled bruises that had obviously been in the process of healing for several days. It was also unlawful for a woman to deny her husband's pleasures. Because in that time, a wife was basically a possession for a man's taking. They could do whatever depraved kinks that struck their fancies to their wives. Women were not allowed to not be in the mood. Naturally, this is just a horribly toxic environment for any woman to be a part of. This got a young woman named Julia thinking. She was a descendant of a woman who was put to death for poisoning her own husband. Prior to her heinous act, she created tinctures and cures for ailments. And Julia was smart. She'd absorbed a lot of knowledge from her late mother, and she had one hell of an entrepreneurial spirit. So she got to work, like a chemist in a lab. She came up with her own proprietary blend of poison. What was so great about this poison was that it was odorless, tasteless, and colorless. And even better, it could successfully kill any man of any size with just four drops. Julia had no desire for her poisons to end up in the hands of men. Men had all the power. This was a secret weapon strictly crafted for the female persuasion. Nowadays, we see cosmetics as a product for all, but back then, men had no interest in such things, and even if they did, they would never dare to speak of it. Brilliantly, Julia made beautiful bottles that looked like perfume or lip rouge bottles. She even sold it under the guise of makeup but the women who showed up with money all knew exactly what it was. Between 1633 and 1651, Julia sold countless bottles to countless women. Literally countless. She herself couldn't even recall an exact number, but it was surely in the 100s and probably closer to the 1,000 mark. The battered women were able to hide their divorce in a bottle in plain sight. It looked unremarkable among their perfumes and cosmetics. One of the best parts of this concoction was that, if administered just right, it not only caused prolonged suffering, but also mimicked many illnesses that were vast at the time. Julia recommended that the women administer one drop per night or every few nights in their husband's wine, water, or soup. They would fall terribly ill, 
They would grow bedridden with a commode nearby. They would sweat profusely, vomit, and have explosive diarrhea. Because this predated modern medicine, it was not uncommon for a person to die from the types of bugs that we recover from easily today. By the third dose, it was obvious that death was near. This not only gave the wives a break from the beatings and treachery, but also prompted some husbands to repent, or at least try to absolve some of their sins, somehow. They also felt compelled to get their dealings in order. If no will had been drawn up, they would certainly muster the energy to do it, or at least call the proper people to their homes to do it for them. This ensured that the wives would likely receive the remaining fruits of their husband's labor. After years, and sometimes a full lifetime of abuse, it was a small consolation. The fourth drop was certainly the nail in their coffin. Any postmortem exam would only find natural signs of death like dehydration and stomach illness. They did not have the science that we do today. These exams really could only catch signs of obvious poisonings that had telltale signs that were well known, or could determine if there were any signs of trauma, like gunshots or stab wounds on the exterior of the body. That meant that these wives would get away scot-free and so would Julia. To this day, we still don't know the exact proportions of ingredients in Julia's famous poison, which became known as aqua tofana. After all, it looked and tasted like water. Tofana was Julia's last name. It contained arsenic, which was likely the dominant ingredient, lead, and possibly belladonna. Arsenic is known as a semi-metal because it contains physical properties of heavy metals and provokes similar symptoms. It is the ingredient synonymous with rat poison. Lead is also a metal. Belladonna is another poisonous perennial that is otherwise known as nightshade. It acts similarly to aconite. It causes paralysis in the involuntary muscles of the body like the heart, you know, the muscle we need the most. If this poison was used in this concoction, it was likely trace amounts. Perhaps it was just added as an insurance policy of lethality. Today, we actually know about one telltale sign of most heavy metal poisonings. This was obviously unknown in the 17th century or else the jig likely would have been up. When the body stores high amounts of heavy metals, the nails develop white bands that traverse the nail bed. Typically, every single fingernail and even the toenails will display these lines if the poisoning is bad enough, and sometimes you get multiple lines on one nail. So, if you ever notice such a thing, you are likely being poisoned, although it may not be at the hands of a person. Sometimes their own homes can poison us, but that's a conversation for another day. The symptoms brought on by aqua tofana would have possibly caused some paralysis, but more than likely, it would have been more of the creepy crawly sensations on the skin. There was definitely nervous system dysfunction. The husbands may have also felt tingling and numbness. Onset would have looked very much like food poisoning, violent vomiting, profuse sweating, muscle fatigue and weakness. A stabbing sensation in the head would have eventually given way to an unrelenting widespread throbbing. As the doses kept coming, they would begin to bleed internally. This would cause bloody diarrhea and vomit, as well as eventually hypovolemic shock or shock from blood loss. The fact that the men would have already been losing more fluids than they could take in would make that blood loss feel very significant. They would grow so dizzy. They would even experience bouts of paranoia and dementia as their kidneys began to shut down. For the husbands who already had sick hearts or suffered from alcoholism, they would have kicked the bucket before the fourth drop. They might have even died shortly after the second. Regardless, it would have never looked like foul play. Julia 
probably would have continued on offering hope to battered wives with poison, but unfortunately, one of her clients folded like a soggy card. She went as far as to put a drop in her husband's soup and to serve it to him. But right as he was about to take his first spoonful, she knocked it out of his hands and flew into hysterics. She cried and screamed. She confessed and begged her husband to bring the information to authorities. She gave him the bottle that she purchased to present as evidence. It was over. Julia was arrested and tortured for days. She offered a coerced confession that she helped to poison at least 600 men, a figure that was an estimate. She didn't keep books on her sales. She had no idea how many it truly was. Soon, her own daughter and three other women who had helped her run her day-to-day business were also arrested. In the misery of her ongoing torture, Julia offered up a select few of her clients' names, but kept most of them a secret, allowing them to keep their freedom. The names that were given were also rounded up. Her clients, helpers, and daughter, as well as her, were all executed. Sadly, Julia met the same fate that her mother had met when she was just a child. I don't know about you, but it kind of bums me out that she got busted. I mean, I am sure that there were possibly some innocent husbands who were poisoned along the way by greedy wives, but for the most part, these women didn't have a whole lot of hope at this time and she kind of offered some to them. I don't know, call me crazy. Thank you all so much for joining me once again. I will see you at this time next week. Until then.